Find the life you didn't think was possible with the Jesus you never knew. Together, let's slow down a little and pay better attention to the most significant person in history. Welcome to the podcast, Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus, with your hosts, Rick Lawrence and Becky Hodges, brought to you by Lifetree. Visit us at JesusCenteredLife.com. Hi, listeners. This is Season 2, Episode 25, brought to you by Lifetree at JesusCenteredLife.com. Hey, today, the Beckinator is otherwise occupied. So those of you who are in the Pigs group, the the uh, private Facebook page called The Pigs, for those of you who are uh, identify as all in with Jesus, those of you who are on that page, feel free to concoct an elaborate explanation for why the Beckinator is not here today. I would really love to see your made-up reasons for why she's not here today, and then we'll compare your made-up reasons to the real reason and see if her real reason is more entertaining than yours. We'll do that next time. But today, I mean, by by happy chance, um, one of the most catalytic people in my adult life, my close friend, Tom Melton, agreed to come on with me today to talk about a tough subject, and I can't think of anyone better than Tom to talk about this. Um, he's been a pastor for uh, 25 years, and before that he was a ministry leader for many more years in a parachurch organization. He's really one of the most insightful, well-read people I've ever known. So, Tom, with that buildup, you get to say hi. Well, I, I probably ought to say more than hi, but yeah, uh, yeah, I'll you, just leave it at hi. Could you say uh, hi in three different languages? Because that would then... I can, yes. Yeah, but the languages are not discernible, so you'll need to have somebody who <laughs> has the gift of tongues to understand it. So That's in, excellent. In, in deference to the audience, I'm just going to go with uh, English, which is my fifth language. That's excellent, yeah. I think we'll yeah. all realize that English is your fifth language as we go along. Yeah. So Tom yeah. Tom uh, uh, was my pastor for uh, a dozen years, and over the course of that time, we became close friends, and, and uh, we have the best conversations that I have in my life are with uh, Tom. And today, the, the, the topic we're going to tackle is maybe one of the toughest aspects of discipline. This whole month, we're focused on discipline and, and different things that are connected under that big, ominous umbrella of discipline. Today, we're going to talk about how do we root out and overcome patterns of sin in our life. And I was uh, uh, you know, fishing around for uh, something that would help kind of frame our relationship with sin today in America. And there was recently a, a, a Barna study done called Temptations in America's Favorite Sins. Well, now that's a now that's an email subject line, isn't it? America's favorite sins. Most people would open that, but that what Barna found out is that the top three sins that most Americans admit to, this will be interesting: procrastination, overeating, and spending too much time on media. So basically, all of the safe sins are <laughs> are what we admit <laughs> sins we wouldn't be embarrassed to tell a researcher from Barna that we that we're seduced by. Uh, so uh, Todd Hunter, who's the pastor and author of a book called Our Favorite Sins, was a consultant on this survey, and he says, you would think the top sins would be sex, drugs, and rock and roll, but no, they're not. So here's a few other figures here. 60% of Americans, so 6 out of 10 Americans, admit they're tempted to worry too much or procrastinate. A little over half, 55%, say they're tempted to overeat. 
and about four out of ten say they're tempted by sloth or laziness. So, in fact, sex, drugs, and rock and roll, those kind of vices were like dead last in the temptation category, and really the battleground for temptation has shifted into the digital world, which is not that surprising. Dave Kinneman, who's with Barna, says this, nearly half of Americans admit to being tempted to use too much media, and one in nine admits to expressing their anger digitally. The other couple other quick notes here, uh, other interesting things about this, is that many Americans who do admit to being tempted basically say they're not putting up a very big fight (laughs) against that temptation. The study found that about six out of ten Americans admit they don't do anything, anything to avoid temptation, and half of them can't explain why they give into it. Um, And the other aspect here that's interesting is uh, we can't even really agree anymore about what sin really is. So worrying, uh, you know, not on the list of seven deadly sins, worrying is, even though it's not considered one of the seven deadly, deadly sins, is one of the top sins that people point to. So uh, Todd Hunter says uh, this, there's no agreement on what sin is. It's one of the aspects of the world we live in. It's becoming more relativistic. It's hard to talk about sin when everyone disagrees about what it is. What we do know about sin is that we don't like it sprouting up in our life, um, and we typically try to negate the impact of sin in our life in a variety of ways. And Tom, maybe we can talk a little bit about what are some of the typical ways... You're a pastor for a quarter of a century, so you got exposed to a lot of people's sins. (laughs) So what did you observe about how people try to deal with their sin? Well, I think one thing that's important to distinguish uh, when you have a conversation about sin and temptation is to differentiate between the two. Uh, and there's uh, temptation is not sin. <clears throat> Jesus was, it says, uh, was tempted in every way that we are, and yet he didn't sin. So uh, as I listened to that survey, and it's talking about these are the temptations, um, temptations are only the enticement to something. The sin is actually, you know, when we follow through with the temptation. Um, so, I, and I think uh, a lot of um, that, you know, gets gets confused. So people come into my office and say, you know, I'm really struggling because I'm tempted by pornography or I'm tempted by, you know, those more innocuous ones that that survey talked about. Um I'm tempted to use this or tempted to do that. Um, so I, I think that one of the, the main distinctions, again, when you first of all making that distinction, and because because remembering that we have an enemy that is the accuser, and uh, one of the things he accuses us of is sin, even though it isn't necessarily sin at all. It's just temptation. Um, the and sin in itself is really about a relationship with God. And so it all comes from, if you take God out of the equation, which our culture certainly has, and substitutes other gods, then it's only a sin in the sense that it it um, goes against what works for us or what doesn't work for the community we're living in. So It's more pragmatic. Is, sin, sin then becomes an issue of pragmatics. Right. Yeah, and, and so people, they don't really hate sin, they, what they hate is the consequence of it. <laughs> and they hate, they hate the, for example, shame, 
um, if if uh, you know you're tempted all the time to whatever you want to make zeroed in on, um, then uh, there's nothing you can do per se. I mean, about when you're tempted with something, it's how you react to that temptation that is the key. So, in Dallas Willard's stuff, that you know, he was one of my mentors in my doctoral program. He talked a lot about the whole idea of, um, like when Jesus said to the disciples, watch and pray that you might not sin. So he's connecting something you can actually do physically, an act of your will, on the positive side that will help you not sin. So he didn't say, um, don't be tempted. Uh, in fact, even the Lord's Prayer says, lead us not into temptation. There's a sense of um, that that's going on around. So, um, you know, I, anyway, I'll, I'll pause well, there for a second. Well, so let, sure. let, let's talk about this a little bit. So uh, when, uh, when you're in this kind of counseling situation, which you are in thousands of times, and trying mm-hmm. to help people move through these things that are potentially destructive in their life, what was one of the biggest barriers that you had to deal with, with people who were trying to get out of a pattern of sin but were having a hard time doing it? What was the bit, one of the biggest barriers you had to overcome well, with them? I think w- one of the biggest things, uh, that it, and it was a realization I came to reading a, a book by a guy named Gerald May, uh, who is, uh, and the name of the book is... Uh, um, Addiction uh, and Grace. Addiction and Grace. Yeah. So, in because in, he basically talks about us being addicted to all kinds of things, addiction of, of aversion, things that we stay away from, and attraction. But that the, the basic uh, paradigm of addiction is that we substitute something, whether it's a physical addiction or emotional addiction or whatever, we substitute something that's natural or good with something that is unnatural or not good. And so we become dependent on that thing, and pretty soon we depend, you know, just like a physical dependence, uh, we become dependent, and the big hazard is that it, we substitute that um, for what should be there. So without being too philosophical, I mean, the reality is that God has made us to have him at the front of it. So um, when we are dealing with it, a part of it is that, that people don't get out of it, uh, out of that pattern, is because they don't see the addiction. Um, in other words, one of the characteristics of addiction is denial. And the other one, another characteristic that May talks about is that it has a diminishing return so that what used to kind of be exciting to you becomes less and you need more of it. And that's sort of the pattern. So people come in and with all kinds of, you know, basically addictions um, that get, uh, because we don't deal with them as an addiction, we just deal with it as a, as a, you know, an inconvenient problem. Um, so it's sort of like the AA thing. I mean, it begins with saying I'm helpless to help myself. So until you come to a point where you say, you know, I've got an issue here and I don't, you know, I, I, I need help, that's the biggest barrier. And so, so often when people would come to my office, just the fact that they're in my office was a first step. Huge first step, yeah, and it, it helps to uh, explain why Jesus camped on this idea of bringing everything into the light. Don't hide yep. things under a bushel, put it on the top of a mountain. He used it in lots of different ways, 
relative to don't hide things, don't keep things in the dark. The light is your friend, even though the light can be painful. And this is the very thing that uh, kind of is the high bar for us, I think, in that we would really, really like to keep most of these things in the dark. Um, That's why we we, uh, are tempted into posing as much as we are, because we're trying to um, present a front that continues to allow us to have stuff in the dark, if, if right. we can possibly keep it there. And the light is the first painful step of kind of healing or um, uh, exposure therapy to helping us uh, move away from the, our yeah. addictive ruts. Yeah, if you look at, uh, interestingly, in First John 1, 9, it says, if you confess your sin... God is reliable uh, to forgive it. But if you refuse to admit that you sinned, then you make God out to be a liar, and the truth becomes an illusion to you. So if you think about the the word confess in that context just means to agree with. So, you know, obviously God already knows what's going on, and, and he knows if, you know, you're doing whatever you're doing, even more than Santa. Santa, we always thought, is the one that knows if you're naughty or nice, but turns out that God's even bigger than Santa. But so um, you're breaking so, some eardrums right now. This is this is this is deep stuff. <laughs> yeah, deep thoughts by Jack Handy. <laughs> um, so um, if you think of that, when it says I basically agree with God that I have done something, and there's a difference again between temptation and sin. Um, and and one of the things is it's, it's the difference between acute anxiety and chronic anxiety. Acute anxiety comes from actually having done something. It's it's event oriented. The chronic anxiety is it's about you as a person. And remember that what, one of the things that Satan does is he accuses us as a person. He doesn't accuse us of the event. There's such a thing as true shame, acute shame, and false shame. Acute shame is, yeah, you should be ashamed of what you did, and I am ashamed. And that has a beginning and an end, but it isn't about who I am as a person. Satan's leverage is he doesn't even pay attention. He only uses what you did as leverage to accuse you as a person. And so that's where the real power comes is when they, someone comes into my office, they're defeated, and they feel like either you know extreme would be killing themselves or quitting or giving up. And why is that? Uh, it's not just because of one thing they've done, uh, or maybe they've done it habitually, but it's the the accusation that comes with it that you are a shameful person. Yeah, you can o- you can overcome an event in your in your mind, but you can't overcome a twisted and broken identity that's hopeless. Right. Yeah, and that's the ontology part. The the essence of who you are is what it brings us into bondage. Um, I had a I had a man come in one day, and this is obviously way extreme, but uh, I was speaking at a conference and on sin and and the impact in our lives. And he he was a elderly guy, probably seventy five years old, and a real respected guy in the community. And he came up and said, "I I, I wanted to confess something to you." And he was one of the leaders of this church and all this, and a great guy, all that. And I said, "Sure, what do you got?" And he said. Well, many years ago, for a long time, I had sex with animals, and um, and so therefore I have lived a uh, 
a double life for 50 years. Wow. So right now, just listening to you tell this, my eyebrows have elevated by about a half an inch. I can't imagine what that felt like to actually hear somebody confess that. Well, the thing about it, though, that was, was pertinent is that that was an event. You did that, and obviously you were ashamed of it. You knew it was wrong. Uh, there was something that compelled you to do it. You know, there was a temptation. It, it, someone didn't put your, a gun to your head. So that's a whole different issue. What? So what's tempting to one person isn't necessarily tempting to another. But the fact of the matter was 50 years he lived in bondage um, because he was never able, before confessing that to me, to confess it, to get it in the light. And once that happened, it was amazing. Um, you know, and I, I've shared with you, Rick, to my own uh, journey in that world of, of bulimia. You know, so uh, that was a shame thing that for... Ten years, uh, I battled uh, binging and purging and became basically addicted to the phenomena of that. And then even when I quit, uh, it was ten years before I ever told anybody that I had done it because I was so ashamed. Even though the event itself and events were done, uh, and then when I finally told somebody and then I began to get it in the light is when I had freedom from it, and it had less power over me. Yeah, and to think about what's on the line here in the context that you're describing it, if it's an event that you can move through through, by bringing into the light and confessing um, and then being free from it, that's one thing. But if it is not in the light, uh, if it is not dealt with, then this is where the great leverage of the enemy of God comes into play to take people out of their impact yep. impact in the kingdom of God, which is the end game for yep. the enemy of God. He wants to take people out from their vital role in the kingdom of God, the role that only they are uniquely situated to play, and he's, yep. and he's quite creative about how he goes about taking people out. And I think uh, what this creates in us, it, obviously, is a is a kind of an autonomic response to these things in our lives. We either—I listed a few here in my own notes—we often try harder to do better. We just say, I'm going to do better the next time, because we feel the pain of the consequence of whatever it is we've just done. So we vow, we make a vow. Maybe this is why Jesus said, don't make any vows, (laughs) because Mm -hmm. a vow is like planting our flag into the future and saying that's going to be our reality. So we make that vow that we're going to try harder to do better until the motivation inevitably wears off. Or we say mm-hmm. sorry and promise to improve, and uh, I, I want to be a better version of myself. Or we hide it, or reframe it, or ignore it. Or, more spiritually, we pray like Paul did, and ask that our quote-unquote thorn be removed, this addictive behavior that we have. Please remove it. How could this possibly be a good thing? And sometimes God appears to not care mm-hmm. whether that thing's yeah. removed or not. So these are all kind of common responses to uh, battling against sin. And, you know, uh, I, we, we were talking earlier, Tom, about um, I thought this was really vitally important, um, that the the one kind of uh, the, the weak underbelly of all of these default ways that we address our sin, it does not address the motivation that we have for why we would get something into the light, or why we would actually divest ourselves from s- sinful patterns. You talked about the the focal point of that, and maybe you could uh, expand on that a little bit. Yeah, and I think w- what happens is 
because we substitute something that is unnatural for um, what is natural. And what's natural, what we're made for, is a relationship, primary relationship of openness and honesty with God. And if you, it's kind of theological, the background or the foundation, if you go to Genesis, that Adam and Eve, it says, you know, walked in the garden, et cetera, and knew God and knew each other until they usurped God's authority in their lives and they, you know, broke his uh, commandment. And then it says the consequences that they hid from each other and they covered themselves. And even as, you know, God found them in the garden, he says, why are you guys hiding? And something fundamentally was broken. And so that's built into all of us. It's natural, even though it's not uh, what God intended. It's natural for us to hide when we do something wrong. So when we start making that which we know to be wrong, and say that rather than dealing with it against the straight edge of God's law and who he is, and we just rub out the law, then thinking that that will make us feel better, it actually makes us more susceptible because now we don't have anything to even compare it to. And so we're doing all these things. We're living our life without God, um, and we substitute some other God, whether it's, you know, um, something what we would call more perverse sexually or something like that, or if it's just our, even our family or our, or, uh, our church or anything that takes the place of God, because it was never designed to fulfill us. So, but we get dependent on it. So like you say you start taking a, a, a amphetamine, you know, to, to give you a buzz to help you get through something, and that takes the place of the natural secretion of that chemical that's designed to be in your body, and then your body tries to balance that. But the, then as that unnatural chemical that you substituted, um, you get more, it's a diminishing return, so now you need more of it. And, and then the mental part is that you don't want to give that up. Um, I may say I do, but I don't want to. So unless you start dealing and looking at, so why is it that this is tempting to me? And then that's why Jesus said, you know, watch and pray. Watch for what? Well, I think, you know, who knows exactly, but I think practically speaking, it would be watch what you, is a phrase, you know, Rick, I've used with you before, is notice what you notice. Mm-hmm. Uh, why Why is that tempting to you? Um, and if it you know, could be any number, why is the, the uh, social media tempting to you? And again, we don't have time to go into all that stuff with chain hips, electronic media, but the, the reality is it's the same pattern where you replace. So what is the social media replacing in your life? Um, and when we're not aware of what it's replacing or obsolescing, then we have no control over it. So, so, so and part of that is, is simply being awake and engaged with your own interior patterns and asking yourself honest questions about those patterns, because that's the, mm-hmm. asking yourself, what is that replacing, or what is that right. doing for me, is simply an honest question. And you know, I'm, yeah. I, was, I was just looking at John 16, which is just so full of Jesus trying to point us to the coming Holy Spirit. He's trying to reassure his disciples that it's going to be okay when he leaves, because something better is about to come down the pike for them, and that is the Spirit coming. And he mm-hmm. directly addresses this whole issue of 
sin. He says in uh, John 16, 8 through 9, if, if uh, those of you who are listening to this uh, want to flip open your Bible to that, he says, uh, Jesus says, and when the Spirit comes, he will convict the world of its sin and of God's righteousness and of the coming judgment. And then listen to this. The world's sin, here's, here he's just laying it out. The world's sin is that it refuses to believe in me. And I, I think that merges really well into what you're saying right now, Tom, that our mm-hmm. fundamental sin, and w- from which all other sin sprouts from, is our refusal to believe in Him. Another way of mm-hmm. saying it is our refusal to express our need for Him and the truth about who He is and attach ourselves to Him in a dependent way. I mean, all yep. of those are sort of the components of belief. It's not just admitting that God exists, but this belief carries with it a kind of uh, intimate attachment. It's, yep. it's, a, it's a commitment of trust toward Him. So Jesus is saying our fundamental sin, from which every other thing comes from, is that we have detached ourselves from our natural, the natural source of our passion, which is mm-hmm. our intimacy with Jesus. We've d- detached ourselves from that and attached ourselves to other things. Yep. And once we've attached ourselves to these other things, we've refused to admit the change in our attachment. We refuse to say we are now attached to this, and mm-hmm. and th- it's really the only way that you can then find your way back to an attachment to Jesus is is when you begin to admit that I've detached from Him, and mm-hmm. and now I'm I'm trying to extract life from something that can't do the job. Yeah, in fact, you know Gerald May and the uh, Addiction and Grace. One of the primary paradigms he talks about is that that very thing of attachment. There are um, addictions of attachment, and et cetera. But the idea of attachment is that we think, so like in the Buddhist world, it, it, the whole idea is to be detached from everything and then just kind of float around, et cetera. But we are not to just—the the, the, ba- the basic problem with addiction is that it substitutes. Just what you said, that he says that we become attached to something that doesn't have the ability— to fulfill the, what is natural. And so, but because we're in control of it, and it, it ultimately controls us, so we need to detach from that in order to attach to that which is accurate. And the great loss, according to Gerald May, is our inability to love. Because whatever we're attached to, we then become, we, we love, we give our heart to. And you know, so you think of even John 15, where it says, you know, if you abide in me, and I abide in you, and a part of that abiding is, you know, putting him first, and it's not just an act of the will, it's just a reality. If yeah. you do, then stuff happens naturally, but yeah. back and, to your point, I mean, but but the thing you're saying, that unless you acknowledge, unless you look at an addiction model, the biggest thing that hinders it is denial. So, no, I'm not attached to that. I've got it under control. Well, then, and he says, if you ever want to just test whether you're addicted to something, it's real easy. Just quit doing it. (laughs) (laughs) And and then, you know, if you say you want to quit and you don't, because then one of the other characteristics of addiction is rationalization. As soon as you say, oh, I want to quit, and I, but then you say, but I could quit anytime I want if I wanted to. Uh, But I'm, I, I don't. But don't get me wrong, I'm not attached to it. I, well, you think about the absurdity of that. Well, okay, if that's the case, then quit doing it. Yeah. You know, I was, you thinking, know, so. as you, I was thinking as you were talking there that um, 
I just love this maybe my favorite phrase in all the New Testament in 1 Corinthians 2 2, where Paul says he's determined to know nothing but Jesus. He's not just he's not saying, um, I want to know nothing but Jesus. He's saying, I'm determined. And he mm-hmm. in, in a in a way he's saying, I understand what will happen if I detach myself from Jesus. So even though I am perhaps the smartest person on the face of the earth right now, and certainly one of the most highly educated and most adept and skillful orators, debaters, and apologists, um, I'm going to attach myself to Jesus. I'm going to determine to know nothing but Him right now, because my life has to come from Him, not from yeah. some someplace else, even if it looks like a strength. You know, Tom, I'm wondering, just in the minute or two we have left here, and when we were talking about this before, um, you, you mentioned Dallas Willard, and uh-huh. you, you mentioned uh, something that he advocated, which I thought was fascinating, which might help uh, help our listeners as their takeaway from this. He, Dallas Willard said something about doing a doable thing on your way to doing a hard thing. Maybe you could talk about that a little bit to close us off today. Yeah, he, he often he said that spiritual disciplines— or basically um, doing something with your body physically, which all the disciplines are, that will allow that you can't, if you just said be more loving, um, as opposed to doing certain things like telling people that you love them or something that you actually uh, are in charge of, you can do, those things aren't the same thing as what you're trying to develop in yourself. He used a the uh, model of Michael Jordan back in those days where he'd say everybody wanted to be like Mike, um, but not everybody wanted to train like Mike. So Mike didn't just, wasn't just born that way. He worked every day, um, like Paul saying, I'm determined to do that. And so uh, in a phrase that I mentioned to you earlier, in a, a NASCAR race on the back of the shirt of one of the pit guys, it says not everybody or many have the will to win, very few have the will to do, prepare to win. So a lot of our the spiritual disciplines are about doing things that you actually can have a will to do. So like um, you know if your if your temptation is in gluttony, you may you know the spiritual discipline may be fasting. Um, and all it does is it doesn't mean that you've now gotten rid of gluttony. It's made you more aware of why you are attached to food, or if it's it's a uh, you know, if it's dominating people, your spiritual discipline that you can do, you can say, I'm going to go someplace and not talk for, you know, 24 hours. And um, that that in itself is not the end any more than me doing 100 push-ups. Uh, the reason I do 100 push-ups is because I want to be a better football player. So we do, those are things that you can actually do in order to, uh, like like you're saying in the Garden of Gethsemane, watch and pray. You can do both of those. It, you know, it doesn't matter what you're wearing. It doesn't matter where you are. Watch and pray. Why? In order uh, that you might not um, be tempted. Yeah. So, it, it, and I think that's one of the practical things that, that because we have a generally a negative view of discipline, almost like more of a, as a punishment. You know that God says, I want you to have these disciplines. Well, disciplines without the object of, of Jesus or anybody else, even if you say, I'm, you know, you see athletes, they work their butt off, um, 
because they love something. Yes. And uh, that motivates them to do it. Uh, it isn't just, I, I love doing exercises for the sake of exercise. Some people do, and that's another issue. But um, most often, it's that's what's, you know, so if you know that there's some connection, the reason that I'm going to uh, d- discipline myself to read the Bible every day is not so that um, the Bible reading is an end. It's, the disciplines are always a means to an end. And the problem is we tend to confuse those. And in religiosity, we make the means the end. That's he good. He's really religious because he reads the Bible, and or he goes to church, or he doesn't, you know, do this or whatever. Those are just means to an end, and the end is, as you said, is to know Christ. Yeah, and and I'm as you know, I'm in the midst of writing a book right now called Spiritual Grit, and uh, it's ba- it's partially based on some secular research into grit and how people have grit and the important role grit has in overcoming challenges is in life. About- is that about John Wayne? I, yeah, exactly. It's a profile, yeah, a biopic of John Wayne, yeah. True grit, yeah. yeah. So the, one of the findings in the research about uh, about grit is that the basis for all grit in anybody is a passion for something higher than yourself. Hmm. And one of the yeah, premises one of the premises that runs through my book is there is no passion higher than the one we can develop for Jesus. Mm-hmm. If, you're, if we're going to develop grit— there's nothing that fuels grit higher than a than a passion for Jesus, because it's just as you're saying, Tom. The object of our perseverance, the object of our discipline, is what fuels our discipline. And if the object of our discipline is a lesser love, then we have mm-hmm. little fuel for the discipline. So, yeah, I no, really appreciate great. I really appreciate you being on today, Tom. I know you've got a a thing you need to go to now and. Um, uh, just for our listeners listening to this, I think that was Tom opening his car door and getting into it to go to his appointment, not a dump truck backing up over him. So that you heard along the way there. So just so That's you're not worried, presumptuous. I it know. is. I'm. 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 I'm guessing here, but yeah. The reality is, I am currently underneath a dump truck. Uh, I've only got a few seconds to live. <laughs> well, thank uh, thank but, God we li- <laughs> we got your last few seconds out yeah. of you, Tom, before you yeah. expired. Well, the dump truck drivers of America, I think, uh, have got something to explain. (laughs) Well, thanks for listening, everybody. Uh, And remember, you can find out more information about the things we talked about here today, but in further detail on the JesusCenteredLife.com webpage. You can find our podcast section there. You're looking for Season 2, Episode 25. And again, this is Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus. It's a podcast from Lifetree. You can subscribe to us on iTunes for all the latest podcasts, and we'll talk again next time when the Becky Nader will be back. And we will again talk to Tom again at a later time. I'd like to have have him on every once in a while because I just love talking to him. So, Tom, we'll see you again. Thanks, Rick. Great being with you. All right. And, uh, God bless everybody. All right. Bye-bye.